Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to part two of episode number 123 of my 16 music podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. So welcome all you to part two of episode number 123 of my sexy music podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams. So for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, you know, on the Apple Podcast app, or in Stitcher, or in iHeartRadio, and Google Play Music, or on Spotify, and you're wondering, so what the heck is this? I'm just going to give you a brief description of what this show is all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, and I'm a 25-year-old songwriter slash producer, but I'm also a huge 60 music fan slash expert slash nerd. And each of this podcast, I take one song by one artist in the 60s and the show in two parts. First part, so, part of the show, I talk about my opinion of the song and why I think it's so good or why I think it sucks into my own personality and the original song to include the chords, melody, and lyrics. And the second part of the show, deep deep into the history behind that track. And that part of the show, I talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, what studio the song was recorded at, the history behind the studios, that, the musicians that recorded the song, whether it be the studio musicians of Bimmers themselves, history behind the artists that recorded it, and the songwriters that produced it, that wrote the song, and the, producer, the producers that produced it, and the history behind the studio the song was recorded at, and the name of the studio, and also what label the song was recorded was recorded in the history behind the city the song was recorded in, and also what the label the song was released on, and the, year, the peak position of the song we have originally in the Billboard Hot 100 charts in the year and month the song was released. All that is in the second part of the show. Now, before we move on to this week's episode of the podcast, um, I actually have a really big announcement for you guys. I know I've been talking about this for quite a while now, for the, at least since November of last year, but um, for those of you who are wondering, <laughs> you know, that, that two-song single I've been telling you was going to get released is finally out. Yeah, it's really, really exciting. Um, I actually have brand new music out for the first time in many, many years. Because um, let me tell you, I mean, this podcast is quite the commitment for me. It's, you know, it takes up so much of my time. So it's really, it feels really, really good to actually have brand new music for you guys to check out finally. And uh, if you're wondering where can you hear this song, because um, it, it, it's, it's, it's basically... It's on all the usual platforms where you can actually listen to music, um, you know, as far as streaming it is concerned. Um, you can listen to it on Spotify, Apple Music, um, uh, Amazon, and also, you know, Tidal and, you know, all, all the usual places where you can stream music. This song is available on. Now, also, if you're really, really young and you listen to this podcast and you know what TikTok is, well... You can basically, um, you know, use this song in your TikTok video if you want to. And uh, it's also on a couple other platforms. It's on Deezer and Tidal, you know, which are kind of under the radar sort of, uh, you know, streaming platforms where people listen to music. Um, if you want to find the links to, I want to say most of those things, but not all of them. But I mean, if you want to find the iTunes, Amazon, Apple Music and Spotify link to those to that two song single, um, what you can do is that you can follow that link that I was dropping in the descriptions of the last two or three episodes of my podcast in, uh, from no, from last November. Uh, you can find uh, the links to, the, to that two-song single in uh, the description of those, po- of those podcast episodes. I think the first one I did was for Lenny Welch. So 
Go back to the Lenny Welch episode and any episode after that, and you'll find the link to where you can basically click and listen to it on whatever you like, iTunes, Apple Music, Spotify, or Amazon, because they're all there, and all they're all in one separate link. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, if you, if you guys want to support this part of me, you absolutely can. Um, I really do think that if you're, you know, if you love the music I talk about in this podcast, I, I can almost guarantee you, you'll love my own music too, because it's not that far off from it. It's not, it's not exactly, uh, you know, a totally completely different thing from the stuff that I talk about in this podcast. It's a little bit more modern, uh, a little bit more today, but not to the degree of the stuff that I don't talk about on this podcast at all, you know, because this podcast is not about modern music. Um, you know, it, it can be, but, you know, I tend to stray away from talking about the really modern sounding stuff. But, you know, again, my music, you know, it's not that. It's not like, you know, Harry Styles and Dua Lipa and stuff like that. It's definitely not that modern, but it definitely so has elements of music from the 60s. So I guarantee you, you'll love it. And, you know, also you can follow my artist page on Spotify, which, again, you can find under my new stage name, Sam L. Williams. And, you know, that's basically the name you're going to find all my future releases on. The first two song single is there. And, and again, it's just like a 45 RPM. It's there's an A side and a B side. And love it for you guys to listen to that. Um, you know, again, you know, I would appreciate if you can go on there and check it out. Let me know what you think of the songs. I would really, really do. I mean, you can leave me a review on Amazon, too. And that's pretty cool. Um, but again, please go check out, you know, those two songs because I worked so hard on them and it's really you're you're ac you're accessing a different part of creativity for me because there's a creativity that goes into this podcast and choosing the artists and songs and I talk about each week and telling these stories behind these songs. But there's also a certain amount of creativity that I put in my own music too that's a little bit different. So I really think you guys would like that a lot. And uh, also um, you know, one other thing I wanted to let you guys know is that um, I don't know if you guys liked the last interview I did on my podcast because, again, I tried something different and I noticed some people that checked it out, they had a difficult time hearing her, the person I was talking to. And uh, and I, I'm going to definitely try to fix that the next interview guest I have because um, there's probably a snowball chance in hell I'll be able to have an actual in-person interview coming up anytime soon, unfortunately, due to what's happening with COVID. But um, maybe one day I'll get back to that, but we'll see. But um, the reason why I'm even mentioning that is because I have another potential interview, <laughs> uh, you know, subject, and he's definitely interested in, uh, you know, me, me, I'm, I'm me interviewing him on my podcast. And, you know, he's another one of those 60s music heavyweight guys. <laughs> and I know it's, I, I it's not very often I, I have guys like him on my podcast so I'm really really excited to have him on my show because you know it's going to be a lot like the the bass player for Tommy James and Shondells it's going to be in that same wheelhouse but it's going to be for a very very huge band of the same caliber and the same of hip making machinery as Tommy James and Shondells I mean they I mean they put out almost the exact same amount of hit singles but they just came they came out just a little bit before them and they just had so much of an influence on other bands and other artists at that time. I mean, they were so unique and they were just so incredible as a band and their music was so interesting and it was a mishmash of folk and blues and, you know, and in pop music and it was just unbelievable. And that potential interview 
prospect to have is who is definitely down to do an interview is Steve Boone, the base, the original bass player for Eleven Spoonful. Now, of course, a question you guys might have is, okay, he was the bass player for Eleven Spoonful, but was he in the original band? And the absolute answer to this question is yes. Steve Boone was from the band since was in the band from its from their inception in 64, 65, and he was there right from the very first hit record to the last hit record they had. So he was there through all of that. And uh, I'm really, really excited to get to talk to him because, you know, they have such a fascinating history, you know, because they're right on the crossroads of folk and rock during, you know, the height of the British invasion. And, you know, they were all folk musicians who were, you know, in folk groups before, you know, they really took off as pop rock musicians. And, you know, they, they were the first rock and roll band to play in Greenwich Village in New York back in the 60s. I mean, they were playing these clubs that were so inhabited with acoustic folk, you know, musicians for many, many years who never even bothered to plug in. Well, these guys were the first one to do it. I mean, and the hits that they put out were just unfucking believable I mean, do you believe in magic? You didn't have to be so nice. Daydream, did you ever have to make up your mind? Summer in the City. I mean, it's just, their stuff is so fucking good. It's just unbelievable how great they were. And uh, they have such a great history because, you know, they, you know, they were self-contained. There was no other musicians on their stuff besides them. And, you know, they wrote all their own songs, too, which is so cool. And really, there was so much creativity put to their, put on their records. I mean, they had their own little George Martin because they had Eric Jacobson producing their songs. Um, but they were just so good as musicians that you know, and their and their stuff was just unbelievable. I mean, again, it was it was just a mismatch of pop, rock, and folk and blues. I mean, there was no other way to put it. I mean, you know, they they wrote their own songs, but they paid tribute to all those great folk and blues records of the twenties and thirties. I mean, it's just their stuff was so incredible that I mean, their hit making career was long too. I mean, it started in sixty five and then it ended in sixty seven. And that's kind of what the interview is going to be like with Steve Boone. It's going to go through that entire period of their hit-making career, and a lot happened. I mean, everything from them, you know, recording Devil Devil Magic independently and them getting turned down by every major label in New York because they weren't British. I mean, that whole thing where they just became superstars overnight, practically, you know, and they just had to get do a couple things to really tighten up their sound, to really, really get good as a band. And if you, if you, if you, okay, if you're, if you're listening to this and you're like, Sam, I don't know anything about the 11 Spoonful. Have you done them before on your podcast? And, and absolutely. Yes, I have. So if you want to listen to me really doing a deep dive on 11 Spoonful, go back, uh, and to, to the first year I did this podcast back in 2018 and the summer of 2018, I did an episode on 11 Spoonful. I did a two parter and part two, I really get deep into the history behind them. But it's going to be nice getting to talk to Steve because he was in the band. So if there's any, you know, misinformation or facts about the group that I might not be aware of that, you know, he's he'll be able to fill in a lot of the blanks, a lot of the holes in the story that, you know, of the band. But I mean, it's going to be really, really good because, I mean, they were a New York band that recorded in New York recording studios. They were in L.A. I mean, they just sounded incredible. It's going to be really, really good. So. Um, that's probably going to happen the first week of February. We'll see. I mean, he's definitely down to do it then, but I'm just waiting on a few things from him before we can actually do that. But that's going to be really cool. So yeah, so that's going to be exciting. So if you guys weren't really too keen on the last person I had on my podcast, cause 
she wasn't from the 60s. Well, guess what? I've got another 60s heavy hitter coming up pretty soon, so I can't wait to have him on. So that's going to be really cool. I can't wait for that. Moving on, let's talk about the history behind last week's artist and song. And that song was Fool's Little Girl by the Shirelles. And, you know, and basically we're going to talk about the history behind the Shirelles, but also we're going to talk about the Brill Building. And I know this is not uncharted territory, uh, specifically for this podcast, um, but I feel like it's bare worth mentioning again because um, there's a couple of things that I've done in regards to the Brill Building on this podcast. Um, I've done, I've explained. Uh, the British invasion in connection with the Brill Building, you know, obviously with, you know, when I did the animals, and I also talked, to, I also did a song by Dionne Warwick, which was written by Burt Backrack and Hal David. So I mean, I've I touched on this before, and I also had Mark Barkin on as a guest on my podcast uh, a couple, I think, a couple years ago, um, and you know, he really, really went in depth about the Brill Building. So. Um, if you're, if you're, a, if you're a newbie to this podcast and great, because you're about to hear some stuff you've never heard before, but if you've, if you've been listening to that, my podcast since then, then I apologize if I'm reiterating, reiterating a lot of the same information to you, but I feel like with this particular, um, episode of my podcast, um, when I talk about the Brill Building, I think it, it's 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 not worth it for me just to just to mention oh the Brill Building sixteen nineteen Broadway and sixteen sixteen fifty Broadway and that's it. Um, I think it's worth it for me to actually talk about the studio musicians and the songwriters and and also the recording studios that were that these songwriters used um, to not only record their demos but also produce their records. Um, because I I tried to have Mark Barkin talk about that and he did talk about that, but. I mean, the other thing to keep in mind about New York City is that, you know, unlike Detroit and a couple of other cities, um, New York was, there was multiple studios in that were in New York back in the 60s, and many of them had multiple uh, hit singles. I mean, not everything was recorded, not every hit song that came out of New York City back in the 60s was recorded in one studio. Everything was, the the the, 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 the hit songs, as far as what's used, it's not, they were recorded in, it was they were really really spread out, um, but I mean I think that's what I'm going to do with this episode. I'm really going to talk about the recording studios that you know just the whole atmosphere in New York at that time, and you know just what what was happening musically, you know, and also you know, and the reason why I'm even going to talk about the Brill Building in the first place is because I and last week I talked about um, the you know I, I I touched on the girl group genre and what what exactly it is specifically and um and in you know the the fact of the matter is is that you know the 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 genre itself what we think of as girl group music like what came out of the 60s the, it was born in the brill building you know it, that's basically where, where it all started and you know it's it's important to talk about the musicians and the songwriters and you know the publishers and people that worked out of the Brill Building. You know just to just to even you know ta- you know introduce girl group music in the first place because it's not worth talking about unless I unless I mention you know the the you know the Brill Building. And uh, you know before I get into the Shirelles history, we're going to talk about that. And also once we kind of get into the the Shirelles history, we're going to talk about the recording studios that worked that were based in New York at that time. But really. 
I think this is important for me to, you know, reintroduce the Brill Building again because it's been a while since I've talked about it. I mean, I talked about when I did the animals, but that was more about the British invasion, not so much the Brill Building. There's, there's some I did mention a few things in there, but and I did it when I did Dion Work and I then I interviewed Mark Barkin. But now we're gonna get really, really into it. So let's. Uh, I'm not gonna waste any more time. Let's get right into it. Okay, so. Um, one question you might have as far as where was everything happening in the music industry back in the 50s and 60s? Because um, over the years, um, there, you know, I feel like a lot of people have created this false image in their head that what, what the biggest hit singles and the greatest hit singles that were ever recorded in that decade they were all recorded in Los Angeles. Um, you know, I mean, the Wrecking Crew played on everything. Uh, you know, it was all done in L.A. studios with, you know, it was the Beach Boys. It was the Mamas and Papas. It was Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Um, you know, it was, you know, it was all that. Fifth Dimension, Johnny Rivers. And it was all L.A. musicians, L.A. studios, um, L.A. artists. And, I mean, Sam Cooke, Jefferson Airplane. I mean... L.A. as one city that's been kind of dug into the ground so much, but um, I hate to break it to you, but in the late 50s and early 60s, L.A. was not the happening place for music to be rec- popular, music to be recorded and released. Um, it you know a lot of most of the hit records that were come out coming out of the late 50s and early 60s were not recorded in L.A. but were actually done in New York City. And, you know, that's where the music industry hub was at that time, because 90 percent of the hit records you heard between the years 1957 and 1963, most of them were, you know, recorded in New York City and were written by, you know, songwriters that worked in the Brill Building. And also, um, you know, a lot of these songs were recorded, you know, with New York studio musicians and released on New York labels. Now, the, obviously, there was stuff recorded in Nashville. I mean, you had Motown, and then you had Chicago. I mean, there was that. But, I mean, music, music. New York City was ground zero for the music business in, you know, the you know the late 50s and early 60s. That's where it was all happening. I mean, and here's the thing. So, you know, when I mentioned the Brill Building, a lot of you might not know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, well, you know, it's a little confusing because, you know, when I say the Brill Building, I really don't just mean one building. Um, and I know this is this is now this is definitely going to confuse you, so you really have to listen closely. Um, you know, in New York City, in Midtown Manhattan, back in the the early fifties and early sixties, there were two buildings that were there for quite a long time. I mean, they were there since the thirties and forties, but you know the the real rock when rock and roll was really becoming a thing and it was becoming blowing up people were listening to it people were really enjoying it and Elvis was having hits and so many you know white musicians were starting to imitate black artists and that whole thing was going down in the, in the mid 50s and into the late 50s um there were two buildings that were churning churning out the most hits but you know, it, it was one of those things where it was like one was the Brill Building and one wasn't. But one could argue that 
the what people think of as the Brill Building was the other building that wasn't labeled the Brill Building. <laughs> I know this is this is this is when it gets kind of confusing because that's this is when you really got to pay attention. I'm gonna explain to you exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, so um, the Brill Building, you know, what there it was the main building was labeled the Brill Building because it was located on 1619 Broadway. It was accorded. It was basically on Broadway and 49th Street. That's exactly where it was. That's where it was. It was the corner of Broadway and 49th Street. And that was the building where it was the, it was the first building to really, you know, have a lot of hit songs. I mean, Famous Music was located there. That's where Burt Bacharach and Hal David wrote most of their songs. And that is where uh, Lieber and Stoller wrote most of their hit songs. I mean, they were on, uh, you know, Hill and Range, which was where Doc Palmas and Mort Schumann were most of their hit songs. And again, that building was 1619 Broadway. And, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about, OK, so the Brill Building was the epicenter of the music was at the time. But what was the atmosphere in the Brill Building like? Well, I mean, that's kind of when you have to go back and listen to the Mark Barkin episode of the interview episode I did. He did a good job of explaining it. But. Really, in a nutshell, you know, it was such a competitive and very not super laid back atmosphere. This wasn't L.A. where people were, you know, smoking weed and just, you know, really, really laid back and just, you know, having a great time, you know, doing like these really sort of, you know, laid back, uh, you know, uh, records, you know, with, you know, very, very intricate arrangements. It wasn't like that at all. I mean the 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 New York scene, you know, in the in the late fifties and early sixties, and you know, in the in the rec recording scene, you know, was so fast and so intense and so dramatic, and so there were so many things happening. I mean, you know, like what Mark Barkin said. I mean, there was so much fierce competition amongst the writers who were writing these songs, and you know, it was it was one of those things where it was like there was this wonderful camaraderie between the songwriters that were writing these songs because they desperately wanted to write songs that were that were you know having the most commercial success in the Billboard Hot 100 chart, and they would get mad if you know one of their one of their friends got a cut with an artist that they wanted they've been trying to get a cut for 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 months and months and months but their but their but their other friend was the one who got the cut as a writer and they didn't you know i mean there was so much i mean they, they uh, and also they got green with envy you know because they real you know there, there were so many writers like man i wish i can write songs like him i just really really wish i could and they just and they got and there was so much frustration because there was so much rejection happening i mean you would walk inside that building and you would just knock on the doors of all the major publishers that that were out of there and you would just get turned down so many freaking times before you even actually got a chance before a publisher even give even gave you a chance to even write songs within this building so it was the polar opposite of the relaxed sort of feel-good atmosphere that la was happening in the mid-60s it was so intense and just so like really really fast-paced and and really i mean if if you if you've never been to New York and you you don't know what I'm talking about you don't know what the Brill Building is, imagine you know and I've t and I talked about this when I did Dion Warwick but imagine you're a songwriter and you have a regular partner, and you and your partner you know basically have what is known as an office job, so you go into the building right you clock in you punch in your card and say hey I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna go into this building and write a bunch of songs and you go in there. And for maybe for an entire day, five days a week, you would go in there and you would sit on the piano and you would just bang out songs. 
you know, you would sit there and your writing partner would, you know, one person would, would be playing chords in the piano, singing the song. And most of these rooms were really, really tiny. They just, all they really had was a piano and sometimes a stool and sometimes a window if you were lucky. But a lot of times they didn't have those things. All you had was a piano. So you had to stand up and play this upright acoustic piano. And basically what you would do is that you would pound out the chords, these songs, and then you, and then, and then the song, and then the other person in the room would, you know, just punt, you just pound out lyrics. And then the songs are written so quickly. And then a lot of times, you know, since the walls were so thin, you know, you can hear other songwriters in other rooms writing as you're writing these songs and you're getting ideas as to what you could do for your next single that you're going to write for. And, and the other thing is, is that, you know, these songwriters, you know, they didn't always write from their own personal experience because they were writing. They were these guys were writing machines. I mean, they did a lot of times they did not even have the time to really sort of, you know, think about and contemplate mm, what should my next song should be about. I mean, I wonder what kind of interesting chord changes I should use for these for these for this next single I'm going to write for this artist. No, I mean, these guys were under contract with a major with major publishing companies in in those two buildings. And they literally had to sit there and just pound out these songs and get them finished. Because the quicker they, they can get these songs finished, the quicker they can go down to Dick Charles and associate and record demos for these songs and get them pitched to these major label, uh, these major labels who were accepting demos for you know for the for the artists that they were record that were on their roster. I mean, you know, the producers would like Snuff Garrett and Phil Spector. They would go in there and looking for demos for. I mean, they would go there almost every single week looking for songs to record for their artists. You know, so there was such a high demand for songs and singles for these artists. I mean, whenever artists would have a hit song, they desperately need a follow up. So they did not always have the time to, you know, really, uh, you know, think about what's what what thing I should write about next because these songs are in so quickly, and they really just had to go in there and just write them so you know, without even really giving them much thought. And that's why a lot of these songs kind of had sometimes some similar chord changes and similar things happening because as soon as a hit song came out, they quick, bam, they needed a follow-up single. They really, really needed one. And that's what a lot of these songwriters did. I mean, just it was how they kept their lights on because, you know, the performance royalties they were getting from their publisher, you know, and, you know, from from and from ASCAP and BMI, I mean, the, you know, the PROs that they were with and, you know, and the, and the you know, they got their writers and the publishers got their publisher share. But I mean, that's how they were making a living in New York City at the time. They really needed to write hit songs that were getting played every hour on the hour on the radio. And at the time, you know, it's not, you know, here's the thing. Here's the other thing is that, um, you know, when, when you talk about the Brill building, right? Um, I mentioned that it was 1619 Broadway, which was one building. But then the other building was not the Brill Building. But the th confusing thing is, is that most of what we think of today as Brill Building pop was record was written in this building, and some a lot of it was recorded in this building too. And that building was not the Brill Building; but it was under a different address, uh, and that and that address was 1650 Broadway, and I believe that was on 52nd Street. That was a different building, but in that building, that's where you had Alden Music. Now Alden Music was. A, a publishing company that was owned by two guys who were veterans in the music industry, Don Kirshner and Al Nevins. And uh, Don Kirshner and Nevins basically were uh, so were not songwriters, but they were producers. Al Nevins was a producer, and he worked as an A&R man at RCA, at RCA Records in New York. 
and he also co-owned the publishing company with Don Kirshner, and they are all, and they were also record label owners. And you know the thing is, is that you know these guys were not really musically inclined, but they knew hit songs when they heard them. But you know their offices were based in 1650 Broadway. Now, and now the writers that worked for 1650 Broadway were essentially. You know, in that building, you know, that's that's the whole cubicles thing happening. That was really where it was happening. And in that building, you had writers like Jerry Goffman, Carol King and Barry Mann, Cynthia Weil and Neil Sedak and Howard Greenfield and Howard Greenfield and Jack Keller and Jeff Barry, Nellie Greenwich. I think they were on Trio Music. I think they were in a different publishing company. But I mean, basically, you know. Uh, Alden music was really where it was happening for a lot of these uh, different songwriters. I mean, essentially, um, you know, that's that's where the, the the what we think of real building music. It was really recorded. Uh, you know, it was it was it was recorded. A lot of it was done in 1650 Broadway, but also uh, the, it was published by Alden Music, and their offices were based in 1650 Broadway, where 1619 had some other offices, like I just mentioned, Hill and Range, which is where. Doc Palmas and Mark Schumer wrote all their songs and famous music, which is where Burt Backrack and Hal David wrote all of their songs. So, I mean, it was really those two buildings. But if you think about it, 1650 Broadway, where all the music was based off of, based out of, that's really where it was happening. And, uh, you know, and the, also there were several different, uh, you know, major and indie labels that were bait that had, you know, offices based in the Brill building. I mean, co-ed records had an office in the Brill building. Gone records had an office in the Brill building and also roulette records had offices in the Brill building. I mean, Redbird records had offices in the Brill building. I mean, it's just, you know, and, and they all, then they all were located in different, uh, you know, different, the, the, those two different buildings. I mean, you know, somewhere in 1650, somewhere in 1619. I mean, Diamond Records was based in, a, in in the Brill Building too. So again, you know, when I say the Brill Building, I'm you know a lot of it happened in 1650 Broadway, but some of it happened in 1619. But really, I mean, it was those two buildings that made up that whole sort of you know scene in New York at that time. And also, one thing to keep in mind about the New York scene at this time is that the kind of music that was being written and recorded in New York was greatly influenced by a lot of the Latin uh, Puerto Rican uh, music that was happening at that time, that bossa nova sort of um, that thing happening with, you know, mariachi horns and the, you know, castanets and the percussion and the gurus. I mean, a lot of the, the music, a lot of the classic music we think of New York pop music that came out of the 60s, it was greatly influenced by the Latin, uh, you know, Puerto Rican music that was, you know, because the thing is, is that about a, a good a good portion of the population in New York at the time was Puerto Rican. So, you know, a lot of these songwriters like Lee Burns Stoller and Burt Burns, you know, and by the way, Burt Burns, uh, you know, his publishing company was Bobby Mellon, and he was also based in 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 the, in, in, uh, in, the, in the Brill Building too. And I think he was he was in sixteen nineteen Broadway. But I mean, essentially. You know, the thing is, is that um, a lot of the the Latin Afro-Cuban music of that time, which was really, really popular, you know, was greatly influenced, influencing a lot of the writers that worked, you know, in the Brill Building and specifically Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller and uh, Burt Burns. I mean, they were heavily influenced by a lot of this stuff. And, you know, and, and it's funny because, you know, people think that, you know that a lot of a lot of the uh, the the Brill Building stuff. I mean, yeah, it was recorded in L.A. A good portion of it, because 
one thing I talked about when I did Dionne Warwick, I mentioned that a lot of these, like, you know, producers like Snuff Garrett and Phil Spector, I mean, they were all L.A. guys. I mean, you know, you know, Phil Spector was, you know, was really from New York and then he went to L.A. and then he went back to New York and then, you know, he went back to L.A. and Snuff Garrett was a Texas based DJ who wound up being a producer for Liberty Records. And he was an L.A. guy and he he frequently went to New York to pick up demos for Jerry Goffin for, for from Alden Music. And he, you know, he went up, he went to New York and flew there and picked up demos and brought him back to Bobby V to record songs. And, yeah, a lot of these songs were recorded in L.A. with a wrecking crew, but not everything. In fact, a lot of the songs that we think of as Brill Building songs were recorded in New York with New York studio musicians. And one thing to keep in mind is that. Um, you know, in today's musical landscape, you know, at least for the past like five or so years, one thing that is kind of, you know, inhabitant in, you know, as far as, you know, what's what what is considered what we consider t- in today's world, we now have, you know, singer songwriters. And these are people that write their own songs and sing them, you know, and, you know, and a lot of, you know, we have a lot of females that do that now. But back in the 60s, you know, there was no, there really wasn't any female singer songwriters. Uh, you had female songwriters that wrote songs for other artists like Carol King and Cynthia Weil and some other people too. And like, you know, Helen Miller and, you know, writers like that. Um, but there wasn't really any female singer songwriters. I mean, there were, a, you know, a few like Barbara Acklin and Barbara George and Barbara Lewis and Barbara Mason. I mean, they, they all wrote their own songs and Barbara Lynn too, but it was just the, 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 the song, the females that wrote and sang their own songs were few and far in between. So, you know, a lot of the songs that were recorded by, you know, the, the cream of the crop grill building uh, singers like Leslie Gore you know, and a lot of these great uh, Brill Building songs that were, you know, the the premier girl group stuff that you heard, like the Chiffons and, you know, the Cookies and Little Eva and the Crystals and all, all the Brill Building and the Shangri-Las. I mean, all the all the classic Brill Building sort of uh, songs, you know, that were recorded back in the 60s in New York and a little bit of L.A. too, but mostly New York. I mean, most of these songs were you know the lyrics were not written by girls actually i hate to break it to you i mean you know it's true a lot of these songs were actually written by men uh you know as far as the lyrics is concerned i mean you know half of the part of some of the greatest brill building songs girl group songs of all time were written by lyrics were written by jeff barry and jerry goffin (laughs) And those were both dudes. And then you also had Bob Feldman, Jared Goldstein, and Richard Gother, who wrote My Boyfriend's Back. You know, I mean, and then you also had, you know, Gene Pitney, who wrote He's a Rebel. I mean, I, I hate to break it to the girls on this podcast, but it's absolutely true. I mean, a lot of these songs, you know, these great Brill Building uh, girl group songs, you know, the lyrics were not written by girls. And that's simply because the female singer-songwriter that were so inundated with today you know wasn't that wasn't happening back in uh you know the 60s i mean you know it was rare for even females to even co-write their own songs you know i mean most of the time they were recording songs written by dudes you know and you know or the lyrics are written by dudes you know so it was very rare you know for females to write their own songs back in the 60s i mean connie francis didn't even really write her own songs for the most part 
I mean, you know, the the, the Oliver stuff was recorded by uh, male songwriters, you know. So, I mean, it's just one of those things where it's like it was a different time and it was before Carly Simon. It was before, uh, you know, Joni Mitchell. It was before the female singer songwriter that we think of today, which was really developed in the 70s. I mean. I mean, Carol King, even before she was Carol King, the artist that recorded Tapestry, she was working in the Brill Building uh, for Alden Music, you know, you know, writing songs for the Cookies and the Righteous Brothers and Freddie Scott and all these different um, artists for all these different labels. I mean, James Darren and Bobby V and, you know, all, all these different, uh, you know, artists that were, you know, recording in L.A. and in New York, you know, again, you know, this was before it was cool for females to be self-contained and be writing and singing their own songs. Most of the time they didn't. I mean, you had Doris Troy record Just Wouldn't Look, but again, it was rare for, it wasn't very common for females to be, you know, being the writer and the singer for this stuff. I mean, they just, a lot of the girl group songs that were popular at this time were written by guys. But, and, and I know what you're going to say, oh man, Sam, are you kidding me? Like, that's so disappointing. I, I was thinking all these great girl group songs that I love because I'm a female and I th I think these songs are cool. I mean, I would think I would I was singing these songs were in my girls. Well, you know, this was at a time when you know songwriters were not always trying to get very personal. Um, and when I interviewed Mark Barkin on my podcast, um, you know, he mentioned that a lot of these songwriters were writing songs. You know, they weren't always thinking, again, they were written very quickly and they were very written on a very competitive basis. So they didn't always have time to think about what, what kind of song I should write next. So they would subscribe to teen uh, magazines, you know, these cartoon sort of teen magazines, and they would actually go through them and, you know, find out situations, you know, from, from you know, from women, you know, cartoon women in these magazines. And they would basically use those situations for, you know, the songs they would write. Because again, it kind of goes back to one thing I was talking about when I was uh, when I talked to Cat Hamilton. I mean, these songwriters were not writing for their adult selves; they were writing for the teenagers who are buying the forty fives. You know, so a lot of these songs contained situations that were very, very relatable to teenagers at that time, and they were really a lot of times they were trying to get inside the mind of uh, you know different teenagers who are buying these records. They weren't always thinking of themselves which is a totally different mindset that changed once the 60s turned in the 70s with the singer-songwriter thing, you know, but again, I mean, this was in the early 60s when that really wasn't happening quite yet. So that's the other thing to keep in mind, and I'm sorry if I, if I, if I, if I spoiled anything for you, but it's true. I mean, you know, even, even, uh, even uh, this, the song I talked about last week, it was, it was, the lyrics are written by a guy, you know, so, I mean, it's just a fact. I mean, but really, you know, this also came at a time before the Beatles. So self-contained bands weren't, weren't even like weren't even a thing yet either. I mean, this was at a time when there were female girl groups and there were teen idols. So they and, and these teen idols weren't even writing a lot of their own songs either. They were doing covers of their of of other people's songs, too. I mean, there were exceptions. I mean, there was Del Shannon, there was Dion and Roy Orbison. But really. I mean, you know, like Bobby V and, you know, Bobby Rydell and a lot of these, you know, teen idols were, were not writing their own songs. So they were recording songs written by Braille Building songwriters. I mean, Steve Lawrence didn't even write a lot of his own songs. 
So, I mean, this was at a time when a lot of singers were not doing the writing and the, the songwriters were doing the writing. But there, there was kind of an interesting process as to how this all came together with you have the writers and then you have the producers and then you have the studio musicians. And how did this happen, you know, in the, within the within the, the confines of the Brill Building? Well, I talked about this once before when I talked about Dion Warwick, but really um, it all kind of happened because well, what happened was this. The songwriter would write the songs in that scenario like what I was telling you about earlier, you know, within those cubicles or the super thin walls. They would, you know, pound out the song at the piano. But once the songs were written, as far as written on sheet music is concerned, they would oftentimes go into a studio, a demo studio, and record it. And, you know, there were two demo studios that the Brill, the Brill Building guys used the most frequently. And one, and they were very, very, very close to each other. And one was really, really close to the Brill Building. Uh, and, you know, and that, those two studios were Dick Charles and Associate Studios. Dick Charles was better if you were just doing piano vocal demos with just a backup vocal. And then there, were, then there was Associate Studios, which was better for more full band demos. And again, you know, a lot of those demos were sounded so good. They often became records. And I'll get into more of that in just a few seconds because that's exactly what happened with this song. Spoiler alert. But anyways, um, you know, um, these, were, these songwriters would often go into the studio to record these demos. And most of the time they were cut on acetate tape. And the acetate was a biodegradable form of tape that the more time you played it, you know, the more times you played it, the more it would just degrade and you wouldn't be in the sound became so distorted to the point where it was unplayable any, uh, you know, at, at this point. So they record these demos on, on, on the acetate and then they would hand these demos to their publishers and the publishers would pitch these demos to producers like Snuff Garrett and Phil Spector and, you know, some other guys too. I mean, you know, they, the, you know, they would, they would pitch these demos to these producers like Stu Phillips too he was another real building guy and they would you know basically what would happen was that you know they would listen to these demos and then they would figure out which songs would be good for their artists to record and that's exactly what happened a lot of times these songwriters wrote songs for a specific artist but then you know it got recorded by someone else because they're you know their the label their their initial producer turned the song down or they turned the song down and then you know basically they would you know the artists would agree on recording the song and the, and the producer would produce it and then, the, and then basically what happened was that the arranger, you know, who basically wrote out all the head arrangements for all the songs that they would, that these songwriters would write and these producers would produce. And, you know, they would, they would write out the head arrangements, but every arrangement that they came up with was almost exactly like the original acetate demo that, they, that was recorded by the songwriter. So if you think about it, the songwriter is the one who's calling all the shots because they write the songs and they record demos of them. But the professional recordings of these songs would pretty much be exactly like the original demos. They wouldn't change a thing, you know. And sometimes the demos sounded so good, they often became records, you know. But that's that's a whole nother story. But that is so true, because like what Mark Barkin said, you know, sometimes, you know, the you know, the de you know, they were competing for such huge major label cuts at the time that they need their demos need to sound really, really good to the point where, you know, they could could have become records. And yeah, so I mean, you know, the arrangers would oftentimes, you know, they would write arrangements based off the original demo and then they would record it with, 
you know, with a, you know, and they were and basically have a copyist, you know, basically, uh, you know, or, you know, make copies of, the, of their parts that they would write out and they would hand those copies and music copies and hand those out to the musicians and the producer would have a contractor call up all the musicians and say, hey, you want to, you know, record, you want, are you available for this day and this time? You want to, you want to record, uh, you know, a song, you know, you, uh, there's a session booked at the studio at this day and this time. Are you available to make it? We'd love to have you on as a, as a studio musician. And basically, they said yes and a bunch of people got you know agreed to be you know uh, you know musicians on that specific date and they would huddle up and basically they would record the song live you know in you know in three hours and they would basically uh and they'd basically do it do it in like th you know three or four songs three hours and then they would do three or four takes and then that would basically be it and then all the mixing would basically be done on the spot as as these songs were being recorded and that was a process that happened a lot back in the early 60s. I mean, there were some overdubbing done. I mean, it wasn't all entirely done live. I mean, a lot of, you know, vocal overdubs were done. You know, a lot of, you know, a lot of harmonies were being layered on. And sometimes, you know, a saxophone solo needed to be overdubbed. But, you know, for the most part, the tracks are recorded live because, again, you were dealing with three or four track tape machines. Not a whole lot of wiggle room for overdubbing. But, again, sometimes they did it when they, when they felt like they needed to do it. You know, if there was any overdubbing, they would all at times, if they needed to do it, they would definitely do it. But again, I mean, sometimes, you know, for demos, you know, they would oftentimes record all the instruments themselves. And sometimes they would have like one person, you know, basically, you know, doing two instruments in the song. And, you know, a lot of times with, with certain songs, um, you know, the demos would have more multi-tracking than the original uh, master recordings. You know, and this is this is an example of that. And, and, you know, it's one of those things where it's like that is so true with the process of the Brill building. I mean, a lot of demos were just, you know, one person playing everything, you know, and that is and, 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 and that really didn't happen with the original master recordings. I mean, but a lot of times, you know, the, the basic track was cut live and they overdub lead vocal and some other things, you know. But I mean, basically, some of it, it was all done being live at the in the same room at the same time. But let's talk about the history behind the Shirelles and kind of connect that with the Brill Building. Okay, so um, the Shirelles were probably the first ever girl group, pop, you know, group um, to have major hits in America, period, during the rock and roll era. I mean, there are obviously, you know, earlier examples of, you know, like groups like, you know, the Chantels and the Bobettes and you know, and of course you had the Cordettes. I mean, there were there were girl groups before the Shirelles, but when you think of teen pop music, which you know, which was the which is which is geared towards the teen market, which were a lot of these real building songwriters are writing for, you know, really the the Shirelles are probably the first ever, you know, girl group to really write specifically for you know to have major hits more than just one major hit but like at least three or four or five or six i mean this group had a lot of consecutive top uh you know 10 records and top 20 records in the early 60s and and also the other thing is that they were these this was a black group they were a group of color and they were the first really successful uh commercially successful group uh black group of color to have a lot of hits in you know in in in, in the 60s i mean the Bobettes only had Mr. Lee, and then, you know, Chantel said maybe and he's gone, and maybe like one other hit song, but that's about it. But these girls had 
um, Tonight's the Night. They had Dedicated to the One I Love. They had Weasels to Love Me Tomorrow. They had Baby It's You. They had Mama Said. They had Soldier Boy. I mean, they had so many hit songs as a group. And really, um, it, it was all because of a one, one really one person, really, um, who, you know, who really believed in them as a group, but also uh, screwed them over at the same time. And that person was Florence Greenberg. Because you see, the group was from Passaic, New Jersey, and they consisted of Shirley, Shirley Owens, uh, Doris Coley, and Beverly Lee. And there was one other person. Um, it was, you know, Addie Harris. So basically, it was, it was Addie Harris, Doris Coley, Shirley Owens, and Beverly Lee. And essentially, they were from Passaic, New Jersey. And, you know, they were a New Jersey group. And that's the thing to keep in mind is that a lot of these New York groups, you know, they came from cities nearby, like New Jersey. A lot of them came from New Jersey, you know, because New Jersey was really, really close to New York. And a lot of people didn't really stay in New Jersey to record because there weren't really too many recording studios in New Jersey at the time. Most of it was most of this. What was happening in the music industry was in New York City. So, um you know, basically what happened was that they had, there was someone in the group who had a friend whose mom was Florence Greenberg. And Florence Greenberg was a record label executive, you know, in the late 50s in New York City at the time. And she had offices in the Brill Building. And essentially, um, you know, she she was the one who discovered uh, the Shirelles and, you know, brought them with her through uh, a couple different record labels, the first being Tiara Records, and that label was where they had their first, you know, decent, really kind of okay, doing all right sound, you know, hit record, which pretty, I think it was, did pretty well regionally, but not nationally. I met him on Sunday, and that was hit around the time of, you know, maybe by the Chantels and Mr. Lee by the Bob Betts. So that was, that was, and again, that was recorded in New York. And it was it was basically, you know, it, it, it had kind of a 60s sound to it. It kind of sounded like a like a Four Seasons record, actually. It might have actually influenced the Four Seasons and Bob Crew and Bob Gaudio. I'll have to ask him that if I ever get to interview, um, you know, Bob, uh, Bob Gaudio. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, and the thing is, is that the interesting thing about, um, you know, uh, the Shirelles is that they had that record and then they had the song called Tonight's the Night. And both of those songs were really one was released in 58 and the other one was released in 59. But they initially, when they first came out, they didn't. And I think Dedicated to the One in Love came out after that. Um, but the thing is, is that initially when they came out, they didn't really do that well because they weren't on uh, the, you know, the, their main label, which would they would they would later on become on. Uh, they were on they were on TR records. And then basically you know, the, that, that label was, you know, light, those songs were licensed to Decker Records. And, you know, and, and they did okay, but again, they, you know, they weren't really necessarily huge hits yet. And I, by the way, those two songs I was referring to, the ones that came out before they had a really, really big hit in America, those were dedicated to the one I love and a minimum on Sunday. And uh, I, you know, the I met him on Sunday. I don't where, don't know where that was recorded, but dedicated to the one I love was actually a cover of a song by Loman Pauly and Ralph Bass. They wrote it, and it was for a '50s rock and roll uh, duop band called the Five Royals. And basically, uh, you know, they, you know, the, the Shirelles actually did a gig with the Five Royals 
um, you know, and they actually decided they want to record that song after seeing them do that song live. And that's where they got the idea to record Dedicates to the One I Love. And basically, um, that's where that's where they first heard it. And essentially, they decided to do a version of that. And again, it didn't didn't really do so well when it came out. And these were all, you know, on the TR label, you know, leased through DECA. And these singles were on DECA, but they just really, unfortunately, they, they didn't do so well when it came out. So long story short, DECA dropped them because they weren't really having that much success. So, you know, when Florence Greenberg initially became their manager and got them gigs and, you know, and became the owner of the, you know, other, 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 other mass recordings. And basically, you know, she formed her own label with this guy named Luther Dixon. Now, Luther Dixon was a, a songwriter, you know, that was working within the Brill Building, I believe in 1619 Broadway. And one of his er- earliest successes as a songwriter was writing was co-writing a song called Sixteen Candles, which was on which was released on Coed Records and recorded by a group called The Cress. That was one of his early earliest examples of, of an actual hit song. And basically, he re- he he recorded, you know, he wrote that for The Cress, and you know, he he earned a lot of good money from writing that song for The Cress. And he basically, after that, he he essentially became. Uh, you know the you know the principal head of A and R at Florence Greenberg's new record label, which was Scepter Records, and uh, Scepter was I th- it might have been one of the first um, you know record labels that was uh, basically owned um, you know you know or operated by a female. I mean I'm I'm not quite sure, but I think that might be one of the first. Uh, labels owned, you know, and basically, uh, you know, by a female. Um, but yeah, it was it was owned. It was it was formed by Florence Greenberg. And by the way, um, Scepter Records, you know, la- the label lasted for quite a long time. And one of the signings that they had was Dion Warwick, and Dion Warwick was produced by Burt Backrack and Hal David. Now she started out as a demo singer. You know, and she was in, in, in New York and in, in the Brill Building, and then she became a actual, uh, you know, vocalist, an artist within her own right. But there's a whole story behind how that even happened. But I talked about that when I when I when I when I did uh, when I when I analyzed uh, "Make It Easy on Yourself" by the Walkers. But that, I'll say that for something else because this week we're talking about the Shirelles. Um, You know, because basically when they when they got signed to Scepter Records. Um, you know, they actually had a good amount of traction on their first single on Scepter Records, which is called Tonight's the Night. And Tonight's the Night was, you know, it was kind of a risque kind of a song because, you know, he, he, you know, the gar- the girl was talking about, you know, how, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's going to hook up with this guy and, you know, he's the, gr- the guy's going to make her feel all right. I mean, it was very, it was very, very risque. And, you know, it kind of led to the next song, which might have, which was pretty much about the exact same thing, really. You know, it's, it's about kind of a, you know, a, the first time, you know, a couple sleeps together, but they're, but the girl doesn't know if, the, the, the guy is, is going to still be in love with her the next day after they sleep together. And that song was called Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow? And, you know, uh, Tonight's Tonight did really, really well. Peaked at number 39. This was in 1960, early 1960. And then later on that year, late 60, 61, is when the Shirelles had Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow as their, uh, as their next single. Now, here's the thing. So, Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow was written by 
my all-time favorite songwriting team of the Brill Building, um, Jerry Goffin and Carol King. And let me just talk about exactly a little bit more of a background information about 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 them. So uh, they met in the f- in in the, in, the, in when they were really really young when they were basically in college, and at the time Jerry Goffin was not a full time musician. He was a chemist, and that's basically what he did. And Carol King was a, a teenager who grew who grew up in Brooklyn, and she went to a high school called Lincoln High School in Brooklyn in the fifties. And you know she was dating Neil Sedaka, and Carol King wrote a whole song about you know uh, actually Neil Sedaka wrote a whole song about Carol King called Oh Carol, and then you know in return Neil Carol King originally wrote a whole song about uh, about Neil Sedaka called Oh Neil. I mean there was basically you know there you know Carol King had a really really good relationship with Neil Sedaka and you know at the time her name wasn't Carol King it was Carol Klein that was her original name and Alan Freed was the one who just, who said hey you should change your name to Carol King because that sounds a little bit cooler and it kind of hides the fact that you're Jewish but that's a whole nother side of the story but it's so true yes Carol Klein changed her name to Carol King and essentially what happened was that she got signed to Alden Music, which was a new publishing company, which was formed by Don Kirshner and Al Nevins. Uh, you know, their first signings were Bobby Darren as a, as a songwriter and, you know, and and also, you know, he got and through Bobby, Dar- you know, they through through the through Al Nevins, you know, Bobby Darren got, you know, hooked up with. Uh, you know, Jerry Ahmed Erg and Jerry Wexler signed to their similarity to Atlantic Records, Echo Records. Um, but the long story short is that how Carol King even got signed to all the music as a as a writer in the first place is that she was really she really had a good relationship with Neil Sedaka. Neil Sedaka got signed on as a writer first, you know, with Harry Greenfield. And through their, his her connection with Neil Sedaka is when, you know, Neil brought her to the Brill Building and said, hey, you know, Don, you should sign this songwriter. She's really, really good. And then basically, um, you know, Don signed her, you know, to, their, to a publishing company, um, Alden Music. So, yeah, um, that 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 connection was directly from, uh, you know, Carol, Carol uh, Neil Sedaka basically saying, "Hey, you should you know sign you know Carol King, who I used to date, and you know her her name was Carol Klein, but then she quickly changed it to Carol King, and you know and then she, and the thing is about Carol King and Jerry Goffin is that they were really really young when they were writing songs. I mean they you know essentially they were straight out of high school they got married and they had a kid, you know so they were really really young when they were writing songs and they were having babies when they were so young like 18, 19 years old maybe even less than that like seventeen. So, I mean, you know, they, they really needed to be able to pay the bills and they really needed to write hit songs. And this is one of the first hit songs they ever wrote. And basically it was the lyrics were written by Jerry Goffin and the music was written by Carol King. But actually kind of a cool story behind the recording, how the recording of the song came together, because I talked to someone who was the original contractor for the session and he was involved in the making of Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow? And he told me this really cool story behind it was made. And then I'll kind of segue into, you know, basically what happened when they were recording the song. And yeah. So Goffin and King got signed to Alden Music, you know, as, as, as writers, right? And they wrote this song for the Shirelles. And, or, you know, the interesting thing about it is that the way the recording of the song came about was that, um, you know, Carol King originally recorded the song as a demo at Associated Studios. And the address for that studio was 723 7th Avenue in New York. And basically what happened was that she she recorded the basic track as a demo. 
And then, you know, the, the Shirelles got basically paired up with Luther Dixon as their as the new producer. And, you know, Luther Dixon wound up producing pretty much all their hits up until a certain point. Um, but essentially what happened was that, um, you know, Carol King produced the track at Associated Studios. And I'm not quite sure exactly who the musicians were on the track. I asked someone who was there because doesn't quite remember. But I think Charlie Macy played guitar and bass and Gary Chester played drums and she played piano. And then I think I think I'm pretty sure she actually did timpani, too. So all, all the different, um, you know, timpani percussion instruments. She actually she's playing a lot of that stuff, too. And yeah, so she pitched a demo to um, Luther Dixon. And Luther says, wow, this is really cool, Carol, but I think you should probably add strings onto it. So having not have a, having a clue on on how to even write a string arrangement in the first place, she went to a music store, which I believe was Manny's Music. Um, she went there and she and she basically bought herself a book on how to do a string chart, how to write string arrangements for hit songs. And basically, uh, you know, she I, or just string arrangements in general for songs. And, you know, she overdubbed strings on top of her demo with the Irving's by string section. And then she and then they released it as a single. And that's, you know, it became a hit. So her, you know, the version you hear by the Shirelles was a demo recorded at Associated Studios. And the strings are probably overdubbed at Bell Sound with, you know, vocals overdubbed probably at Bell Sound for, you know, with the Shirelles. So that's actually really cool that the version that became such a huge hit was originally demoed and associated, you know, and that and basically they, they overdubbed strings and they overdubbed, you know, lead vocals probably at Bell Sound. So that's really, really cool, you know, that, that you know, they did, you know, they actually did do some overdubbing. It wasn't all done live. And yeah, so essentially that's what happened. And uh, the song went to number one on Billboard. And not only was it the first number one hit song for Jerry Goff and Carole King, it was also the first number one hit for a girl group in general. It solidified this very specific genre of music that was so innocent yet a little bit dirty too. And basically, because basically what the song is about, it's about a girl that you know is about to have sex with a guy for the very first time, but she's not quite sure if. You know their new relation. If their new relationship is going to continue after they have this, uh, you know, after they have sex. I mean, she doesn't know. You know, and that's kind of what she was wondering in that song. That's the question. You know, will you still love me tomorrow? That's where it kind of comes from. And it's really amazing how someone like Jerry Goffin can really, really get inside to the mind of a female and write a lyric like that and just really get into the female psyche. But that's what you're that was the essence of the real building where you had these, you know, these uh, these male songwriters writing songs for the females. And that's exactly what happened. And yeah, it was a number one record in February of 1961. It was released late in late 1960, like November, December 1960. By February 61, it was it was climbing up the charts and it was doing really, really well. And that solidified, you know, the Shirelles as a hit making group. And surprisingly enough, you know, Jerry Goffin and Carole King did not write any more major hit songs for, um, you know, the Shirelles because after that, they wrote songs. He they wrote songs for James Darren, and they wrote songs for Bobby V. And then you know they and then and then basically Don Kirshner and Al Nevins formed their own label for specifically for them called Dimension Records, and they and they were and they wrote a hit bunch of bunch of songs for you know Little Eva and the Cookies, and then they wrote songs for the Drifters. But you know they didn't really write uh, too many more hits for the Shirelles. Actually, I think they. They wrote one more song for the Shirelles that wasn't a hit called What a Sweet Thing That It Was. But other than that, they re didn't really write too many more songs for the Shirelles, which is kind of surprising. But that, that doesn't 
to matter too much because I mean they they wrote so many other really great songs, you know, even after uh you know they you know they they recorded uh, you know, those, uh, you know, they wrote that one song for the big hit song for Shirelles because Hey Girl by Freddie Scott was written by them. Goy Little Girl by Steve Lawrence. I mean, they wrote so many really, really good songs, you know, you know, even after they, they kind of stopped writing for the Shirelles. But the Shirelles didn't have much harm from that in particular, because um, even after that, I mean, you know, they had other writers writing for them. I mean, Luther Dixon, a lot of times would write songs for the Shirelles with Florence Greenberg. And then you also, I mean, for example, Mama Said was written by Luther Dixon and Willie Benson. And then actually, yeah, Willie, Willie Denson, I think his name is actually. And, uh, you know, they also had Soldier Boy, which is another song written by Florence Greenberg and Luther Dixon. And then you had Mama Said, you know, which I just said it was written by Luther Dixon and Willie Benson. And then you had, uh, you know, a quite quite a few other songs written by other songwriters. Baby It's You, which is actually uh, co-written by Burt Backrack. Yeah, Burt Backrack co-wrote Baby It's You, you know, which was recorded by, uh, you know, Florent, which again, which was produced by Luther Dixon, and he co-wrote that song too with Burt Backrack. The song was recorded, were written by Burt Backrack, Mac David, Luther Dixon, and they were they were real building guys too. Mac David was Al David's older brother, and he was. You know they're based out of famous music in in, uh, in 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 New York. And by the way, um, before we move on, I just want to make clear with you that the Brill Building was very much a continuation of the same thing that happened. You know, thirty, you know, twenty, thirty years prior. You know, the Tim Pan Alley, you know, uh, building, which was located not too far away from the Brill Building, but it was basically like the, the the next generation of that for you know the rock and roll era. And Tim Pan Alley was more for the the Great American Songbook and the swing and jazz artists of that you know, 30s and 40s. Well, the, the you know, the, the Brill Building was pretty much a continuation of that. So, um, you know, so now that I've kind of talked about, you know, you know, the, the writers that wrote the songs, you know, for the Shirelles, let's talk about the studios these songs are recorded in. And kind of, I'm going to give you a little bit of a tour exactly of these studios and talk more about them. Because again, like it's really, this podcast should be really all about the recording studios and the studio musicians that made up the landscape of these really great uh, Brilla Building songs because they were more or less written with the same, when recorded with the same group of studio musicians, but a lot of different studios that you know made up the landscape of this building. Let's talk about them, shall we? So one thing to keep in mind about the Brill Building, the kind of difference between uh, the Brill Building and Tin Pan Alley, was that um, the Brill Building mainly had writers, young writers, writing songs for teenagers, and that was the first time it really ever happened. Because in the Tin Pan Alley days, those were not teenagers writing songs. Those were grown-ass old men in their 30s and 40s writing those songs. And those were not teenagers. But this was the first time really, really young people, you know, in their early 20s are writing songs specifically for teenagers. And that was the first time that ever really happened. And by the way, um, Men on Sunday was recorded at Belltone Studios, including Dedicated to the One I Love. So both the songs were recorded at Belltone Studios. And yeah, so um, so the Brill Building, like I said, it was the main the where the main action was happening was on 1650 Broadway, which is near 57, 52nd Street. And then you also had, uh, you know, 1619 Broadway, which was on the corner of Broadway and 49th Street. But what exactly was happening? Where were all the studios in New York City at that time? Well, they were all kind of located in one specific block within each other. Um, you know, the, you know, there were there were some studios that were directly next to each other. And Dick Charles and Associated were right next to each other. 
The address for Dick Charles is 7297th Avenue, whereas the address for Associated was 7237th Avenue. So they were literally right next to each other, like literally right next door. And then also you had right, literally right down the street, you had Mirror Sound Studios, which was located at 145 West 47th Street in New York. And a lot of hits were recorded in that studio too, but that really wasn't a demo studio. And basically, um, you also had A&R Studios, which was located on 48th Street. And then you also had um, Bell Sound Studios, which was also located on 48th Street, which basically, and the address for that studio was, I believe, um, 237 West 48th Street. I, I think it was uh, two, 237 West 48th Street. I'm pretty sure it was. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm wa- I want to say 90% certain that that was the address for Bell Sound. And it was actually West 54th Street. <laughs> I was getting a little bit confused. So it was it was the, the address for A&R, that was on 48th Street. The address for Bell Sound, that was on 54th Street. So, yeah, I was getting, I was getting a little bit confused. So the address for A&R, which was, you know, basically uh, 1112 West 48th Street, that was the original address for A&R Studios. And then the address for Bell Sound, which was basically, um, you know, 237 West, 4, West 54th Street. And then basically you had... Uh, you know, Mirror Sound, which is one, which is one four five West Forty Seventh Street, and then you also had Associated Dick Charles Associated was seven two nine, sorry seven two three Seventh Avenue, and then Dick Charles is seven two nine Seventh Avenue, and then basically you also had Columbia Studio B, you know, which was located on seven nine nine Seventh Avenue, which is really directly right down the street from each other, so. Um, you know, and, you know, I mean, all these studios were located really, really close to each other. Columbia Studios, the main studio they used, that was on 30th Street. And then RCA Studios, which was located on East 24th Street. And really, all these studios all had sort of different vibes for each other. And they were good for different things. Um, Associated Studios was really, really good for... Um, demos and so was Dick Charles but Dick Charles had a smaller room so you really only could record songs that which really only had a piano vocal and guitar they you know you didn't couldn't really do a lot of full production demos at Dick Charles but Associated had a, a much bigger room they had a room for you know a, a isolation room for for vocals and you know basically and they also had a room a main tracking room for you know a rhythm section and i think they also had another room for strings too actually so they had i think they had three different rooms which is actually really cool for a studio like that um it's it's really quite interesting that that studio was like that um and also you had a dick charles which was again a smaller room really really not that big but still pretty but still pretty good if you're just recording like a piano vocal demo and then you had associated studios which was basically um you know a pretty a pretty big you know a, a bigger room because then you had studio a and then you had studio b you know and those were basically you know the rooms where they record like the piano vocal demos and you know i, I don't actually i don't think they even had uh, a different actually i take that back so basically they only had studio a and studio b actually um and those were and those were the main studios that they used at associated and uh, basically, they had these really cool stairwells that associated where you can basically well, that's that's where they mainly used for the echo for that song. And, you know, they also had an old Fisher Springboks unit, 
you know, that they use for, you know, the live echo chamber, which is actually really, really cool. That's where they got the reverb from, you know, and that's, and that's quite interesting. And they also use Fairchild compressors and, you know, the engineer who worked at Associated used an Altec 6338 for a lot of different things, you know, for, you know, for microphones and whatnot. And they also had, you know, uh, Sennheiser microphones, Neumanns. I mean, they, they had, they had the, you know, the, you know, the, the, the real, you know, interesting, uh, the run of the mill stuff. But at the same time, you know, the thing is, is that when they were, when they were recording these songs, they were recording them basically mono to mono to mono. So a lot of times when they would when they when they would record a different take, you know, or basically when they would record a different track, you know, they would essentially, um, you know, they would they would lose uh, a generation of tape each time that they would do an overdub. You know, so basically they would lose multiple different generations of tape, and then by and then by the final uh, you know cut, you would have like a basic mass recording. But that was after like multiple generations of tapes were lost after multiple overdubs. But again, they were recording on three and four track tape machines. So basically, that's that's basically what they were using at that time. Even in in the earlier days, it was even two track. So you know, basically that's where a lot of these songs were. You know, recorded again. Dick Charles associated. Um, mirror sound, bell sound, and A and R, and they all were located really, really close to each other. Um, you know, as far as the story behind this particular song, "Foolish Little Girl" by the Shirelles, I actually have a really cool inside story behind the song because I talked to someone who originally recorded the song uh, as an engineer, and he told me that this was originally done as a demo, done at Associated Studios in New York. And it was basically a demo, and since it was a demo, they, they did they did do some overdubbing, and Charlie Macy played guitar and bass on the session as what he, what he can remember, and uh, also Buddy Salson played drums, and he thinks Earl Palmer, I think, uh, he actually, no, so I was almost going to say Earl Palmer, different city, but, um, you know, actually, so Leroy Glover was the guy who played the organ on the song. And basically, it was a, done as a demo, done at Associated Studios in New York with Harry Greenfield and Helen Miller, uh, you know, basically uh, producing the session. If you don't know who these people are, Harry Greenfield was the guy who wrote all the hits with Neil Sedaka. And Neil Sedaka was very much the, the, the male solo artist for the Brill Building at the time. He you know, basically, you know, co-wrote most of his songs with Harry Greenfield. Harry Greenfield wrote the lyrics. Neil Sedaka did the music. And he was on RCA Records and discovered by Don Kirsch and Al Nevins. And yeah, so basically, um, he became the, the, the Brill Building poster boy. He did a lot of really good stuff. Um, you know, his co-writer wrote the song with Helen Miller. And basically, you know, the, you know, and, and Howard Greenfield wrote the lyrics. And by the way, Howard Greenfield was gay. So he wasn't really writing from, you know, he was really, really trying against the female perspective because he, you know, he, you know, he, which is kind of easy because he kind of had that feminine side of himself because he was gay. But anyway, so, uh, you know, Howard Greenfield wrote the lyrics and Helen Miller wrote the music. And again, these were all Alden music, you know, you know, signed writers. And they were all from Brooklyn, by the way. All these songwriters that were on Alden Music, they were all basically, uh, you know, basically were based in Brooklyn or they're from Brooklyn. And and Jeff Belly and Ellen Granch were, were signed to Trio Music, which was Jerry Lieber, Mike Stiller's publishing company. Um, but yeah, so um, Howard Greenfield and Helen Miller wrote this song and they originally produced the demo with, again, to Associated Studios with Charlie Macy playing guitar and bass and Buddy Salzman on drums and Leroy Grover playing organ. And basically what happened was that... Um, uh, they they took the you know the you know uh, they took the demo you know to the guy who, this is the guy who engineered the record right they took the demo 
to Luther Dixon, who at the time was producing the Shirelles. And Luther Dixon was plan was originally was originally re-record the demo and you know try to do something different, but he couldn't really capture the f- original feel of the original demo very well when he tried to re-record it at Scepter Studios. So what he did is that they basically that the Shirelles basically went went back to Associated Studios or they brought the Shirelles back to Associated Studios to put their lead vocals on and they released it as a single, and then the rest of the album, which was I believe called Foolish Little Girl, it's the same title, you know, was recorded at Mirror Sound Studios again another studio located 145 West 47th Street in New York and basically yeah so that was an original um demo that you know that they that they were recording at the time and that's that's really really cool that they basically had uh that song that they that they originally recorded was not a uh, it was it was it was meant to be something that you weren't supposed to hear it was supposed to be a demo that you know could potentially get re-recorded and if you think about that that demo sounded really really good so um, you know, it's, it was kind of, it was kind of like, okay. So, I mean, they were really, really trying to create good sounding demos because some of these demos were, some of them kind of sounded kind of rough, but really some of these demos sounded almost good enough to the point where they could be records. And this is a really good example of this, because this was another one of those demos that was recorded at Associated Studios that wound up being a record and, and it was a record and it was, and, and bas- it basically got released on March, 1963 and then by May, June, it basically made the basically made the top ten of Billboard of 1963, and it became a huge, huge hit song at that time, and it was really, really quite big. And it's kind of interesting how Charlie Macy played play guitar and bass in the song, so overdubbed. So that's that's what I'm saying. A lot of these a lot of these demos, there was a lot of overdubbing happening. A lot of times, you had a guitar player playing guitar and bass in the song, and that's actually kind of cool. Yeah, they actually did uh, overdubbing, you know, even for, you know, basic demos. And that's actually really kind of interesting thing about that. So, by the way, um, A&R Studios was actually located right next to a restaurant called Jim and Andy's. And that's where a lot of these uh, different uh, studio musicians worked in the real building like to hang out. And uh, Associated was pretty located pretty close to Manny's Music, which was a huge music store, pretty, pretty close to, you know, Associated at that time. And uh, it was it was pretty interesting because... Um, one thing that is actually kind of cool about how they actually got the, 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 the drum sounds on a lot of those records is that, um, you know, they, you know, during the winter time, you know, the, you know, the drummers would have these big, they, they would have this huge electric heater that, you know, that they would plug in and they would actually use that as, you know, uh, for, for brushes as a snare sound, actually. So they would plug in this huge electric heater and then they would have like Buddy Salsman or Al Rogers actually, you know, put put brushes on it and they would use that the snare snare sound. I think that might be that might be what they're using for this particular record since it was recorded at Associated Studios. And by the way, um, you know, the type of EQ that the EQ they used was a Bolt Poltec EQ one PA um, EQ, and then they also used you know Fairchild and Alltech Mono Compressor. So. They used a lot of run-of-the-mill stuff, um, but the interesting thing about Mirror Sound is that it was actually located at the bottom floor of a hotel. It was actually a hotel that was converted into a recording studio, and the and the and the other half of the building was still actually a hotel. So a lot of the room, a lot of a lot of the things that were originally a hotel, where it was it was all, all the, the control room was originally, you know, where where a lot of the, a lot of the people used to eat, the kitchen, and then you also had the rooms where people would sleep. All those, all that was converted into a recording studio, and that was located on West Forty Seventh Street, you know, which is actually which is actually the bottom floor of another hotel called Hotel America. So that's pretty interesting, and that was quite fascinating because 
you know, he actually did, you know, the guy who I talked to did live mixes over there and he would do like mono, you know, two track, three track, you know, four, you know, four, you know, even, even doing like four track mixes. I mean, this guy really did live mixing on the spot, you know, and that's exactly what, what they did. And, and, you know, and they had, and they had Poltec EQs, you know, Lang EQs. I mean, they had a bunch of for a bunch of different things, you know, and at the time, you know, and again, a lot of industry standard stuff, but the hits that were recorded at Mirror Sound was just unbelievable. I mean, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of stuff, you know, like Our Day Will Come by Ruby and the Romantics, Chiffon's One Fine Day, um, Hey Girl by Freddie Scott, Shangri-La's Leader of the Pack, and Remember Walking the Sand and Give Him a Great Big Kiss. I mean, so many, so many hit songs were recorded at Mirror Sound Studios. Um, the Cookies, Chains, and Don't Say Nothing Bad, Bad About McGabey, Keep Your Hands Off My Baby by Little Eva. All those songs are recorded at Mirror Sound Studios in New York. Again, you know, with basically in a converted, uh, you know, hotel. You know, that's basically, that's essentially what, you know, Mirror Sound was. You know, it, and it was such a cool little environment that they had going on there. You know, and the interesting thing is that they actually had Alltech 604 playback monitors because they really wanted to play these songs back the way that they were meant to be heard, you know, which is basically on these tiny little AM, AM speakers that they were using at the time. So basically that's what they used for playback monitors, you know, which is where the rest of this album, you know, which was recorded. It was done at Mirror Sound Studios. And a lot of other stuff was cut at Mirror Sound. Mirror Sound was actually the first ever recording studio in America to get a 16-track tape machine, actually. And, that, and they moved to a different building on 54th Street, actually. So they moved to a different building, and they got a 16-track tape machine. And that's where the platters wrote, recorded with this ring, and that's where the Four Seasons recorded I've Got You Under My Skin, and so many other really, really big hit songs. You know, and it was all done on a 16-track tape machine, which is unfreaking believable. You know, and that was really, really early, like 66, 67. And Bob Goldman was the owner of the studio, I believe. So, you know, he, you know, he was basically the owner of Mirror Sound, and that's where, and he basically, he was hired, you know, you know, Brooks Arthur got hired to work at Mirror Sound, you know, because Bill McMeekin, actually his original engineer, got sick and he was recording Hey Girl by Freddie Scott over there. And that's basically he took over for him and he became the main engineer at Mirror Sound. And that's who is the guy who I talked to, you know, to get all this really cool information for you guys. But yeah, so, um, you know, again, like, you know, the other thing is with the Shirelles is that, you know, they had their, their hit making career right between 60 and 63. And but then what happened was that Luther Dixon actually left the label in 1963. And then, you know, what happened was that, you know, they found out they got screwed over by Florence Greenberg, who was the owner of the label. And they had a whole trust fund for all the royalties that they were supposed to earn, you know, for the songs. But it wasn't even there to begin with. And so they sued, you know, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, uh, you know, Scepter Records and then, you know, Scepter Records countersued. And then it was this whole thing that happened, this whole legal battle. And that was after the release of Foolish Little Girl, which was actually their last top 10 hit, followed by the last top 40, which was Don't Say Goodnight and Goodbye. And then that basically was it, which was recorded at Mirror Sound Studios. So that's basically what happened after that. Also, you know, the Shirelles were, again, you know, another thing that happened, the reason why you might not even really know about them today is because they never really lasted past the British invasion. They kind of, their cutoff was 63. They never had any more hits after that. And they just got swallowed up by the British invasion and all the British English, British bands that were invading American charts at the time. So, I mean, you know, they just they didn't really stand a chance of having any more hits after that. And there were quite a few groups like this, like Ricky Nelson and the Everly Brothers and Neil Sedaka. I mean, they, a lot of them just never really had hits, you know, after the British invasion, you know. So, 
Um, and some of them did have comebacks, but the Shirelles never had a comeback. They were basically done by 1963, you know. So, um, you know, and then a couple, couple of groups, people in the group actually, you know, the, you know, they, they had to leave because they got married, actually. So, you know, it's it's really it's really an interesting story behind the Shirelles because they're really the first commercially successful girl group at the time. And it was before the Supremes, actually, because Supremes didn't really have um you know hits until 1964 with where did our love go and that was before sorry that was after um the shirelles so the shirelles had all the hits you know they were the number one girl group in the country in the early 60s but by by 64 they were done and the, and the supremes kind of took over for them after that you know but the, again the supremes are mainly writing you know songs that could be recorded by guys too but the shirelles a lot of the stuff they did you know was mainly for women to sing, like Mama said, there'll be days like this. You know that was that was written for a girl, you know, the sing and not for a guy to sing. And Boys is the same thing. It was the B side, you know. So um, we used to love me tomorrow, which is also produced by Luther Dixon. So, um, but yeah, most of our other hits, like Mama said and Soldier Boy, and you know, and m- most of our other hits were actually recorded at Bell Sound Studios, and I believe Baby Two was also recorded too. But it might have been because since it was a demo done by Burt Backrack, it might have been done at Associated Studios. So I'm not quite sure about that. But most of our other hits were recorded at Bell Sound Studios. Again, again located at 237 West 54th Street. So I mean, you know, that's that's where basically where all those studios were located at. And there's a lot of other hits recorded in New York from the Four Seasons to the Neil Diamond and. You know Neil Diamond actually. That's where that's where books I went to after he left Associated. He went to he went to A and R, and started recording songs over there on West Forty Eighth Street. And that's where he, that's where Jeff Barry and Ellen Greenwich produced all those big hits for Neil Diamond. You know in in A and R Studios. But we'll talk more about that in another episode of this podcast. But you know Neil Diamond was the first real singer songwriter in the Brill Building. You know before anyone else. But I mean that's another whole another story from another podcast. But um you know a lot you know a lot of the stuff I talk about. You know, it, sometimes it's kind of hard to really see the relevance in right now because we are so self-contained to where, you know, we, you know, we don't really need, you know, someone else to write for us because a lot of times we have to write for ourselves. But occasionally, sometimes you'll have singers today who don't really, you know, know how to write songs, but they need to record songs, you know. They, you know, or sometimes they'll be more open to recording song by someone written, that written, but was written for them by someone else. You know, there are sort of session singer kind of scenarios that happen like all the time. You know, I've recorded a couple of songs, with, you know, a session singer singing on them. But I mean, now it's it's kind of hard to see the relevance with the Brill Building because, you know, we're, we're kind of in all in our home studios just doing our own thing and not really you know, you know, writing our own songs and not really recording songs, you know, having recording songs are written for us, but not by us, you know, so, um, you know, so we're not really doing that anymore. But it's interesting kind of see how they did things back then and how quickly irrelevant this things kind of came once singer songwriters became popular in the 70s and then Beatles and the British Invasion, all the self-contained bands writing their own songs. So, you know, it's it did not having other writers write for them. So it's kind of interesting how there was a stigma kind of attached to, you know, singers that didn't write their own songs. People didn't think it was that good. People thought, you know, oh, man, he didn't write his own songs. So, you know, it's like it's it feels like dishonest, you know, because those aren't his own songs. Well, that was just kind of a different time. You know, I mean, it was very different, you know, back then for, you know, for, you know, people were people more accepting of, so- of singers that didn't write 
their own songs, but now it's just it it feels kind of deceptive when you when you listen to a song, you find out they didn't write it, someone else did. But I mean that was just the way things were back in the sixties, in the early sixties, you know. And uh, you know it's again it's like doesn't mean they're bad. It just means that you know just the, you know the their their you know their strengths weren't really with writing, but with them performing. And then this kind of continued you know recently too with a lot of you know a lot of like hip hop you know pop hip hop pop stuff. I mean there's a lot of songs where you know, you had like, you know, you know, you know, the person wasn't writing the song, you know, like a lot of the stuff like Fifth Harmony and whatnot. But again, that was like 10, 15 writers on one song. The real building, it was just two or three people. That was it, you know. So that was really the genesis of that time was two or three writers in one song. And that was it. You didn't write with any more people after that for the most part. Um, but yeah, so um, that's kind of interesting in how things kind of happened back then and how some of it kind of seeped through today's music, you know, cause a lot of stuff, a lot of, a lot of songs you hear, you know, in the major, major mainstream pop world, you know, they didn't always write the songs. I mean, the other people did too, you know, so, um, it didn't, you know, it, it's, it's something that kind of continued in today's world, but it's kind of interesting seeing kind of the parallels, but again, um, it's really a lot, a lot of the stuff is super duper interesting and uh, I really appreciate you guys for checking out this, uh, this episode. Okay, so before I wrap up this week's episode of the podcast, I know it's getting kind of long, but there's a lot of information to talk about here. Earlier in this episode, I mentioned that Mirror Sound was a demo studio. It actually really wasn't because a lot of, you know, full band production songs that were really intended to be like really, really uh, meant to be released and not just demos. Most of that stuff was kind of Mirror Sound Studios, so it really wasn't a demo studio necessarily it really actually was a full-on production studio at the time it really wasn't a demo studio and also um you know if you if you've never heard of the Shirelles before and you're a millennial and you're wondering how can I make the Shirelles how can I create some sort of connection between them and something from the 60s I actually might be familiar with well uh, you know, one one thing that is not as talked about, you know, as far as how much of an influence the girl group, 60s girl group pop sound had on other, you know, things other than 60s girl group pop, there's one particular band from the 60s that were absolute diehard fans of Jerry Goffin and Carol King. And these guys loved, loved girl group pop records from the 60s. And you're going to know about them. And these guys loved, loved these songs so much. And they covered them, you know, in many in many of their early albums. And that group was the Beatles. Yes. On Please Please Me, um, the group recorded uh, Change, which was originally recorded by the Cookies and also done at Mirror Sound Studios. And they also, they also did a cover of Baby It's You, you know, which is also another song recorded by the Shirelles. Now, here's the thing. So when they covered these songs... You know, these were new songs when they came out. You know, I mean, the Please Please Me album was recorded in late 62 and then released in early 63. So, and most of these songs were not very, uh, you know, you know, old songs. These weren't old songs they were kind of reviving. These were fresh new songs that they were doing pretty quick cover versions of. You know, when they weren't, they were only like maybe like six or eight months. You know, they weren't that old at the time, but they actually did do covers of a lot of these songs and they loved 
you know, the, the 60s girl group pop records. In fact, Paul McCartney has stated, actually, I think John Lennon has stated in interviews that they actually wanted to be the British version of Jerry Goffin and Carole King, who were American songwriters. So they really wanted to be the British version of that. So they were really, really into a lot of the songs that Jerry Goffin and Carole King wrote. And they actually, if you listen to a lot of their early songs that Jerry Goffin and Carole King wrote as writers, you'll notice a lot of harmonic similarities between their stuff and the stuff that the the uh, the Beatles were recording at that time. I mean, they record Don't Ever Change, which is another song that they wrote. And they also recorded Keep Your Hands Off My Baby, and they also recorded Chains, and they recorded... Uh, they'd record a bunch of different songs, you know, and, and even their, you know, and some of the stuff never really made on, on their albums because they actually recorded a lot of these songs live at the BBC. But, you know, the point is, is that they recorded a lot of songs written by Goffin and King and they were big fans of them and they actually really wanted to emulate, you know, their chord versions and create kind of their own version of the songs they were, you know, Jerry Goffin and Carole King were writing. And also, before I go, I want to talk about the the New York studio musicians of a lot of these songs, these songs recorded in because, uh, you know, New York, because, you know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, a lot, you know, depending on who was producing the session, a lot of these songs did have a lot of the same uh, musicians on them. But sometimes if it was a different producer, sometimes they were different musicians. Like, for example, um, with a lot of the stuff produced by Jerry Goff and arranged by Carol King, you know, a lot of the stuff they recorded at Mirror Sound Associated, most of the time, it was Trade Martin, Al Gorgoni, Vinnie Bell, Bill Syker on guitar, Russell Sovacus, Georgie Vivian Middleton on bass, and then they had uh, Paul Griffin on piano and Carol King on piano, and then they had Buddy Salzman and Gary Chester on drums. You know, that was the thing, that was the core group of session musicians they used on a lot of that stuff, and that was the guys they used. But on the other hand, you know, Al Nevins, who was producing records for. Um, you know, R RCA for Neil Sedaka. I mean, he was using guys like George DeVVA uh, on bass and Milt Hinton too, but also he was using guitar players like Bucky Pizzarelli and Al Casamenti and, you know, and Everett Barksdale and all these different other guys. And here's the other thing, is that when it, when it came down to the New York studio musicians, you know, at the time, and just like L.A., it was split down the middle between older jazz musicians who were just trying to make ends meet by playing on pop records and sort of being faceless on pop records while they were huge stars in the jazz music scene at that time. And younger guys, younger studio musicians who really, you know, who really actually were really more into the rock and roll stuff that was popular on the charts at that time and actually really did appreciate and loved it and embraced it a little bit more than the young than the older jazz musicians who were just basically playing on, jazz, on on pop records to make ends meet and they were they were not the famous guys that everyone really loved and talked about you know in in the pop world i mean they were faceless in the pop world but they were big in the jazz world and these guys included al Kaiola, mandel Lowe, and al casamenti and bucky pizzarelli on guitar and then you had milt tension george vva you know on bass and he had lloyd trotman who was another bass player too he actually played bass on stand by me and, uh, and of course, you had, you know, uh, Panama Francis, who, you know, who played on a lot of pop sessions, too. He played he's playing on a lot of the early four season stuff like Sherry Walk Like a Man and Big Girls Don't Cry. He's playing drums on those records. And, uh, you know, and then you had younger guys like, you know, Al Gorgoni and Trade Martin and, you know, and different like Russell Savakis. And you had younger, you know people who were more embracing the rock and roll stuff i mean Artie kaplan was one of those guys he was kind of he was more of a younger guy who was really more into the rock and roll stuff than the older jazz musicians were i mean you know it was it was definitely a split between the young guys who really loved the rock and roll stuff that was on the charts at the time and the older jazz musicians who weren't really that keen into it 
but they were playing on pop records to make ends meet and to make money <laughs> so they can pay their bills and support their families. I mean, that's basically the reason why they were playing on those pop records, not because they were in love with the stuff. It's just because they had to play on pop sessions to make ends meet because the jazz sessions were make, weren't making them as much money as the pop sessions were. I mean, a lot of those guys were like that. Like I said, Milt Hinton, George Vivian, Mandel Lowe, Al Keola, um, Bucky Pizzarelli, uh, Al Casamenti. I mean, Don Arnone, too. I mean, a lot of those guys were very, you know, were, were jazz musicians ever at Barksdale. They were all really, really good jazz musicians, you know. And the trumpet, you know, the, the horn guys were like that, too. I mean, you know, Jerome Richardson, uh, you know, Selden Powell, Joe Grimaldi, um, you know, the trumpet players like Ernie Royal and Wilbur Bascom. And a lot of these guys that worked in the New York scene, you know, they were also, they also, you know, played in the Tonight Show band and performed on TV with a lot of, you know, talk shows that were based in New York, you know, like, you know, the Johnny Carson show. And also they played in the New York Philharmonic. A lot of the string players that were, you know, used on a lot of those records played the New York Philharmonic. I'm talking like Seymour Barag, Morris Donzik, um, you know, guys like uh, Irving Spice and Joe Haber and Louis Haber and Maurice Bialkin and, you know, guys like that. They all they all play. A lot of them did play in the New York Philharmonic Orchestra. You know, so they were very, they were, you know, a lot of these guys, you know, they did other stuff, you know, and they they played in chamber orchestras, but they also played on pop records, too, and a lot of people don't really know that specifically. And, uh, yeah, so that's one thing to kind of keep in mind about the New York scene. Everything interesting to keep in mind about the New York scene is that, um, you know, the, the arrangements were, you know, when you listen to a lot of New York records, right, and you kind of compare them to the stuff that was being recorded in the South and the stuff that was being recorded in L.A., the Southern records are very more relaxed and more laid back and more loose. But the New York records had really, really tight arrangements that just were so, like, uh, just like, you know, almost kind of like, you know, it's like when you have uh, really tight muscles in your body, that's what a lot of these New York records were like. They were almost like super tight muscles because you couldn't really, they weren't very relaxed or very free-forming. There weren't a whole lot of improvising in a lot of those records. Most of it was just very, very tight. You know, you followed the, you know, the charts that were written by the, out by the arrangers and the, and the, and the, and the, and the music copyists. I mean, that's what these, a lot of these records were. They were so tight and just not, there was very less improvising going on a lot of those records. And it was not, that wasn't happening on New York records. I mean, it was in the South, like in Memphis and, you know, and, you know, and even, even in Detroit and a lot of other places. I mean, in those places, I mean, the musicians practically came, came up with the arrangements. I mean, the arrangers, all he did was just write out the chord charts and the musicians did whatever they wanted to add to it but back then it was in new york it was completely different new york the musicians really had to follow the arrangements exactly the way they were written they could not improvise and that is 100 true and you can hear that a lot of those sessions too because when you listen to a lot of those songs and you listen to a lot of those distinctive parts those musicians are playing on those new york records um you'll notice that you know they're they're really not you can kind of tell that they're following a chart i mean they're really listening they're really following a piece of sheet music that was handed to them that they had to say hey play this don't play anything else besides that just play whatever is on the sheet music cuz that's what you're getting paid to do you know and that's exactly what they did they you know they didn't really do a whole lot of improvising unless it was like a solo or something like that it was kind of spontaneous but really they stuck to whatever they whatever was on the paper you know they really didn't do a whole lot of improvising and that's kind of the interesting contrast between New York and other southern cities like Memphis and Muscle Shoals and even like New Orleans. I mean, there was there was a lot more improvising going on in those cities. In New York, it, that wasn't happening at all. I mean, it's kind of like L.A., but even L.A., you know, the musicians could really had more freedom to sort of make up sort of their own parts, 
you know, I mean, freaking Carol Kay, you know, basically invented a whole bass line for The Beat Goes On that wasn't even on the original head arrangement. But again, that really wasn't happening in New York. I mean, there were some exceptions like, you know, Al Groening created the whole guitar part in Brown Eyed Girl. I mean, he made that, made the whole thing up, you know. And uh, but that again, that didn't really happen too often in New York. Most of the time, they were reading from sheet music, and they weren't really making anything up. They were basically following the arrangements that were created by the arrangers, and you know, made up by the music copyists, you know, that were hired for the session. So there's that. And also, one other thing to keep in mind is that the percussionists, you know, a lot of these records are super, super important. Because like I said, there was a lot of Latin influence in a lot of these New York records. So you often heard like gurus and castanets and, you know, tambourine. And also you had like all these different percussion instruments, Latin like bongos and all these different things. And if you think about it, who were the guys that made who were the real like VIP percussionists at the time? Who were the guys that really got used a lot? Well, one guy was George Devins. George Devins was the main percussionist of a lot of those records. He played the vibraphone, marimba. He did the bongos. He did the gurus. He did the castanets. He did the tambourines. He did pretty much all the major percussion elements in a lot of these hit New York records. I mean, there are other guys too, like Phil Krause and Nick Rodriguez, but he was the main guy. You know, so just remember if you're listening to a lot of these New York records and you're wondering who's doing all those, all that crazy percussion stuff, well, that was George Evans. He was the main guy who was doing this stuff. And the other thing is, is that when I talk about, you know, like, you know, string players and horn players, you know, the, a lot of this stuff doesn't, unfortunately, doesn't really make sense really any, and doesn't really make sense right now in today's world because, you know, we live in a time right now where we have MIDI software instruments where we can really get our MIDI sounds and, you know, horns and string sounds, you know, on, on, a, on a keyboard we don't need to have a full orchestra playing on our music anymore. We can just do everything, you know, with authentic, realistic sounding string sounds from native instruments. So, you know, what I'm what I'm talking about was it was a time before any of those things existed. So back then there was no MIDI. So if you wanted a string sound on your record, you actually had to hire a contractor to round out the string section and actually play live strings you know and actually if you wanted horns you want you need to have a contractor to hire out the horn section and you actually had to do it for real you need to have actual horn and string players playing on your record and that's just how it was back then there was no such thing as midi you know so that's kind of the difference between back then and right now because now you can just do it all on the on a keyboard i mean there doesn't make sense to even do a full orchestra thing and we can't even do that now really because of covid i mean we can't really gather up and do sessions like that anymore unfortunately those things are kind of a thing of the past you know at least right now with covid and everything but it's just kind of interesting that that's how they did it back then you know and it just but that's kind of a lost art you know doing everything live like that with a full orchestra i mean you know, some a lot of musicians dream to have a session to do a session like that, but a lot it doesn't happen for a lot of different musicians, including me, because I've never had a session like that. But I do, but it, you know, it's 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 a it's a it's a dream. But sometimes it's it's just a lot of times it's doable with just a keyboard and really good sounding software instruments from like native instruments or something like that. But that's just how it was back then. I mean, there was there none of that existed, so they had to do it for real. You know, and like I said before, like three or four tracks. So they were doing a lot of stuff live and doing some overdubs, but really a lot of it was done live. You know, I mean, you know, a lot of the mixing was done live, too. So if one person made a mistake, they had to start the whole thing over again. And that was really, really true. And that's why when you listen to a lot of these outtakes, 
you'll notice that they that they start the song and they play through it and then one person makes a mistake and they just start all over again and that's exactly what happened back in the 60s i mean you'll hear when you hear outtakes from a lot of these sessions it's one person just you know starting from the very very beginning and then going you know going from bar one and then starting the whole song over again you know until they got it right i mean that's exactly what they did back in the 60s and I did that recently when I did a, when I record you know overdub vocals on one of my songs. I did the exact same thing, but it's kind of interesting. You know, actually we actually did it in chunks, but it's still, you know, again it was one of those things where it's like you know you didn't have the option back then. I mean, there's only three or four tracks, you know, so that's kind of interesting how they did it back then. And yeah, so um, I hope you guys enjoyed my ba- podcast and found some found out some really good information on there. And just by the way, um, before one th- one more thing before I go. The hits that came out of Bell Sound Studios, a lot of Drifter songs like Up on the Roof and on Broadway recorded at Bell Sound. Some of it was done in Atlantic, too. Atlantic, because Atlantic, you know, the other thing is that you had those studios, right? But Atlantic Studios was also another studio that was based in New York. And they had a couple different studios, but Atlantic did have their own recording studio. So a lot of the artists that were on Atlantic recorded in their studios, you know, like the Rascals. The Rascals record most of their stuff inside of Atlantic Studios, but... You know, and then you had RCA in Columbia. Whoever was on RCA and based in New York, they recorded RCA Studios and Columbia Studios. Whoever was based, whoever was based in New York and was on Columbia Records, recorded in their studios. I mean, you know, it's Simon and Garfunkel. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot of that too. But again, you know, I've talked about this before. If it was, an, if it was, the song was getting released on an independent label like Redbird or, uh, you know, Smash Records, Mercury or something like that. Lori, I mean, they recorded in independent studios. They did not record in, uh, in you know, studios like RCA. I mean, they did record at RCA Studios. A lot of stuff on Lori was released on, was, was recorded at RCA Studios. But they could use any studio they wanted to because they didn't have their own studios. So they could use independent studios too, like Bell Sound and, you know, and uh, A&R and also like, you know, Mirror Sound and Associated. I mean, they could use, really use independent studios because they didn't have their own studios. So they had to use some studios to put out the music they were, rec- they were releasing at that time. But yeah, so that's actually kind of cool to think about that. And by the way, <laughs> one more thing. <laughs> I know this podcast is going on really, really long, but there's a lot of information that I want to unpack with you guys you know, for this week's episode of the podcast. So just bear with me. Okay. So, um, the saxophone solo was pretty important on a lot of these records and the sax players who did a lot of these solos were most of, most of the time it was Artie Kaplan who played sax in a lot of these records. And also another th- interesting that happened about these, a lo- and, you know, and also you had King Curtis who played a lot of these saxophone solos too, you know, and they, and they played both Barry and tenor sax. So uh, King Curtis was, was a guy who played the Barry saxophones there were in heaven, and, Neil, and Artie Kaplan played saxophone solos on a bunch of records. Hey Girl by Freddie Scott, Come a Little Bit Closer by Jane the Americans, uh, One, Two, Three by Lynn Barry, um, One Fine Day by the Chiffons. He, you know, Little Eva's Locomotion. He actually played saxophone solos on all the major uh, Cookies releases and Little Eva releases. So he's, you know, he's playing. He played he played the alto sax. He did a couple and played other. I think he also played tenor sax too, but he did. They did play alto sax on a lot of those records. And, you know, the other thing um, to keep in mind is that, you know, another interesting thing that happened with, the, you know, the New York scene in the mid-60s is that, you know, I've talked about this before when the Cameo Parkway, you know, uh, record label in Philadelphia was, you know, on its way out and about to go bankrupt. A lot of the session musicians that were based in Philly, you know, in the, in, in, in the early 60s, you know, who were, you know, flirting with New York, you know, and playing on some sessions in New York. I mean, Leon Huff, 
played on a lot of records in New York, and so did Joe Macco and you know a couple of other guys. But most of the guys that were based in Philly at the time took off and went to New York. I'm talking like Bobby Gregg and you know and uh, and Bobby Eli and you know all these different musicians who were mainstays in New York at the time. You know, were actually, uh, you know, they, they left Philly and they went. To, you know, sorry, they were main saints in Philly. They were they were big musicians in Philly. They they left Philly and they went to New York, and you know, and a lot of these guys included Joe Macko and Bobby Gregg, and he also had, you know, and Jimmy Wisner. Jimmy Wisner was another musician who was mainly in Philadelphia at the time. That you know, as soon as the Philadelphia music scene dried up in the mid '60s, he immediately went to New York, and because it was very, you know, Philly and New York were very close to each other, so it was really easy for. You know, and of course you had you know Jorman Zeddy, who was a who was a Philadelphia-based arranger, went to New York and produced a, and went worked with a bunch of records at Jerry Ross, and then you know and a bunch of so a lot of those you know mid-60s sort of New York records are kind of a melting pot of New York guys and Philadelphia guys too, because a lot of those guys who were mainstays in Philadelphia did go to New York, and you know after the Cameo Parkway record business kind of dried up in Philly, they 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 packed up their bags and went to New York. I mean, this is true with Bobby Gregg and Joe Macko. Joe, they both wound up playing on sessions for Bob Dylan, Highway 61 Revisited, and they wound up playing on the, you know, the Sound of Silence by uh, Simon Garfunkel. I think Bob Bushnock played bass on that record, but I think that's pretty much true. But Bobby Gregg did play drums on the song, and it's really, really interesting how a lot of those New York guys, you know, uh, Philly guys, eventually went to New York after the Camion Parkway session scene dried up. And same thing with the producers, songwriters, like, you know, John Madeira and David White. They went to New York, too, and a bunch of other guys, like, you know, went to New York as well. You know, and that's kind of interesting how there there was that flirtation between Philly and New York in the mid-60s, and that happened quite a bit. And that, that was true for records like One, Two, Three by Lynn Berry, Apple Peach, Pumpkin Pie by Gene Techniques, Sunny by Bobby Hebb, and 90.6 by Keith. You know, so, and Sunday will never be the same by Spanky and our gang, a lot of melting pot between Philly guys and New York guys, but yeah, so... Um, <laughs> That concludes part two of episode number 123 of my 60 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. Thanks for hanging with me for you guys. If you listen to this entire freaking thing from start to finish and you made it to this point, I'm oh my God. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate all the, you know, the if you listen to this entire thing and you didn't stop and go do something else, I really, really appreciate it. Oh my God. Thank you so much. You know, because you guys are the real MVPs right here. If you're listening to the whole thing and you guys didn't and you guys, you know, didn't stop and go do something else. Oh, my God. You guys are so awesome. I really, really appreciate you. So but as per usual, if you found out a lot of really cool information about uh, last week's songs and artists and you learned so much about the New York recording scene, you didn't really know anything about it until you checked out, uh, you know, this episode, this podcast, uh, please email me at Sam ltwilliacloud.com and you can also reach out to me on Instagram at iheartolies and check out more of my original music at samwilliamsmusic.net and by the way the sources of information I'm getting a lot of this stuff from are two uh, one's that one guy a saxophone player and a contractor and, and he was a songwriter too in the Brill Building and Brooks Arthur was an engineer and, and songwriter in the Brill Building so I'm getting a lot of this information from people who are actually on a lot of these records you know so they really knew a lot. they were there and they were participating in a lot of these sessions so you know that's where I'm getting all this information from and you guys are getting their really exclusive you know because this information I guarantee you won't be able to find it anywhere else you know so that's really cool so um, but yeah, so also, you know, as per usual, you can follow me on Instagram, iHeartOldies, and check out more of my original music at samwilliamsmusic.net. Also, the new single is out, so, and that is going to be, 
You can find the link to that on my website and the, in the description of this week's episode of this podcast and a couple episodes before that. That's really cool. And also, you can check out, you know, I would love if you guys listen to it. Let me know what you think of it. You can email me at samltwilliacolod.com. Or you can also reach out to me on Instagram at iheartoldies. And also, you can check out, you know, the official Spotify YouTube plays for this podcast. I update those every week if you want to get a good idea for the kind of music I talk about on my show so far. And maybe suggest some songs I should cover next that I haven't done yet. Please send those ideas to me at samltwilliacolod.com. If you have any, or you can also reach out to me on Instagram at iheartoldies. And you can also check out the official um, Red Bull merch store for this podcast. Um, you know, it's really, really cool. I love, uh, you know, the, um, you know, the, 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 the merch I have for this podcast. The logo is really cool. It's, it gives the catchphrase I say at the end of every episode and keep on trucking tie dye font name of podcast on the bottom. And if you like that, if you like that merch, you know, you know, if you want to purchase something from it, please email me at samltwilliacloud.com. And yeah, and, and I as far as the Grammy Museum uh, thing, it's still on the table. But my school's still actually still trying to find a videographer because, you know, like they had one, but then she had to drop out. So it's you know it's it's still on the table. So please bear with me with you guys on that because it's going to happen. It's just you know nowadays things are taking way longer than expected to because of COVID. I mean the COVID. I mean they should really have something. <laughs> there's the they should really come up with the term and say it's the COVID delay. I mean they really should have something like that because it's a it's a real thing. The COVID delay is an actual real thing. I mean it's really happening. You know also the COVID weight gain too. But I mean the COVID delay is an actual thing that they should they should coin that phrase. Oh you know if your package isn't showing up on time. Oh it's because of the COVID delay. You know <laughs> the COVID delay is real and it's some that they should they should actually coin that phrase if if they haven't coined it yeah i'll probably coin it but yeah so um you know that's you know and trust me it's gonna happen and i can't wait for you guys to see it it's just you know it's the the covid delay you know so it's that it's it's a real thing you know so um but yeah i'll definitely keep you guys posted on that and please you know keep streaming you know my single if you haven't found it yet it's under my new name sam l williams sam capital l dot williams and again, it's my new single, Turquoise Apricot, and she said no. Love it if you guys can, uh, you know, can find that. And also, it's on, it's in the, the link, the Apple Music, Amazon, iTunes, and Spotify links to those are in the description of last week's episode and a couple weeks' episode before that and this week's too. You know, and also, you can find that on my website, samwilliamsmusic.net, and the link to that is also in the description of this week's episode of this podcast. But yeah. So anyways, um, I'm Sam Williams, and uh, thank you guys for joining me for this week's episode of my podcast. The Millennial Throwback Sheen. By the way, next week it's going to be on She and Him, Zoe D. Chanel. We're going to get the modern version of the 60s girl group thing we did last, that we did this week. So um, I can't wait for you guys to do that. So yeah, so um, I'm Sam Williams. Thank you guys for joining me for this week's episode of my podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. Until next week, police! Keep things groovy. <laughs>